New data says we could, could be turning the corner on the pandemic. Full steam ahead for the January 6th commission and some unusual advice from Donald Trump to his fellow Republicans. Millions of openings nationwide, but where are the applicants? I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, October 15th. Well, some encouraging news on the pandemic front. Children ages 5 to 11 are closer to getting vaccinated. That's according to President Biden, who says his administration is ready to go as soon as the FDA gives the green light. The good news is the FDA and outside experts from the CDC are set to make its determination as to whether the vaccine will be authorized for that age range in the next few weeks. If authorized, we are ready. We have purchased enough vaccines for all children between the ages of 5 and 11 in the United States. And it will be convenient for parents to get their children vaccinated at trusted locations. And families will be able to sleep easier at night knowing their kids are protected as well. Now, a vaccine for children can't come fast enough. The number of new cases in children remains, quote, exceptionally high, unquote, with nearly 150,000 cases last week alone. That's according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Meantime, the Moderna COVID-19 booster for seniors has cleared an FDA panel. The vote 19 to nothing. Final approval is expected shortly. Here's some other hopeful news. The Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, says caseloads, hospitalizations, and deaths of adults are likely to trend lower over the next few weeks. So far, more than half of adults are fully vaccinated in 35 states. Another five states say more than two-thirds of adults are fully vaccinated. The total number of deaths in the U.S. is now about 725,000. to other news, here's something odd. Donald Trump says Republicans should not vote in next year's midterm elections or the 2024 presidential election. You heard that right. The former president, who's hinting about running again himself, says Republicans should not run unless what he calls, quote, the election fraud of 2020, unquote, is solved. It's worth noting again that state officials around the country and Dozens of state and federal judges have dismissed scores of lawsuits presented by Trump and his allies challenging the election. There has been no evidence of fraud. In any case, Trump is now telling Republicans, Republicans, not to run in 2022 or 2024. Trump's comments come as the investigation into the January 6th attack by his supporters on the Capitol gathers steam. Four key Trump allies have been subpoenaed by the House Select Committee that's investigating the attack on our democracy. Those ordered to appear 
former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and former aides Steve Bannon, Dan Scavino, and Kosh Patel. They've been ordered to produce relevant documents and appear for depositions. Bannon, for his part, says he will not cooperate. The chairman of the committee says Bannon will be held in criminal contempt. Theoretically, he could be arrested and prosecuted. The more we learn about January 6th, the more alarming it is. Author and Professor Kimberly Whaley of the University of Baltimore Law School is out with a new book. It's called What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. She says people need to understand that we had and may still be in a full-blown constitutional crisis. And the January 6th moment is supposed to be largely ceremonial because the choice of of presidents st- stays in the states. It's not up to the Congress. And we saw many Republicans refuse to recognize the legitimacy of the states. Uh, it's not so much about Joe Biden. It's about the process. That is a constitutional crisis. And because it takes the power away from the people, uh, whether you like how your state certified uh, their electors or not. The point is that you get to choose that at the ballot box. And if politicians come January 6th can just snatch that from the states, uh, that's a real problem. Then we're no longer a democracy. And that's why I say- Did you hear that? No longer a democracy. No way to sugarcoat this. This is sobering and scary. Well, the Labor Department said this week that there are 10.4 million job openings in the U.S., 10.4 million. That's as of August 31st. Lots of people are taking new jobs, 6.3 million in August. Two-thirds of those are saying adios and quitting. That's the so-called quits rate, and it is now at an all-time high. So why are so many people quitting their job? What does it mean? Let's bring in my old friend, Mark Hamrick. He's Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. First, who is quitting all these jobs? Who's quitting? Good to be with you, Paul. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, we've been uh, traipsing around the nation's capital here for many years, although as we speak, I'm still in my home in Potomac, Maryland. But to your question, um, you know, I want to sort of go in a bit of chronological order in a sense here, because just before Labor Day, Bankrate did a survey of Americans, and we found 55% of those in the workforce, those who are working or looking for work, plan to look for a new job in the coming 12 months. And now we're seeing this in force to the extent that we've had a record number of people quitting their jobs. We have a record level of so-called quits in the economy. And that's in the context recently, of course, of uh, near record uh, job openings. In many cases, I think part of a reckoning uh, or epiphanies on the part of individuals who are basically saying, the work that I did in the past, speaking about them, uh, is no longer the kind of work that I'm willing to accept, perhaps because of the working conditions or the pay. And to that survey piece, again, the bank rate survey, when we asked Americans what they were looking for, they were prioritizing workplace flexibility, either in the hours that they work or the ability to work remote over compensation. So pay was not the paramount issue. And, you know, we know that people want to be able to work with with good bosses and with good teams. They want to have an expectation that they can achieve success in their jobs and have an idea that there's a career track. And when we lost 22 million jobs in March and April of last year, we know the leading edge of job loss had been leisure and hospitality, bars and restaurants. 
It just so happens that in that JOLTS report you're referencing, nearly 900,000 workers left restaurants, bars, and hotels. So I think they're saying that, you know, the pay is not good enough. The conditions are difficult. I can't work from home if I'm a a server in a restaurant. Uh, And, uh, you know, as a result, I think we're all experiencing first world problems where if we're going to a hotel or a bar or restaurant, the service can be lacking simply because they don't have the personnel they need to get the job done. Well, these are the kind of jobs where you can't work from home. I mean, a bar is a bar, right. a restaurant. I mean, you have to be there. Uh, what can these businesses do? I mean, that's a big part of the economy, obviously, but they don't have the ability to offer employees the chance to work from home. Uh, what can they do? Well, uh, for example, uh, 700,000 left retail, and we know that the largest retailers, those that have the most financial and other resources, are doing things like paying their workers more, offering them education. We've seen the ads where Amazon's basically saying, we're, we're helping people get access to secondary education so they can leave their jobs and go on to more productive careers. Or Starbucks and Walmart, too. Yeah, exactly. Target. Uh, so they can limit their capacity. They can limit the hours they're open, but that also has a result of limiting their financial productivity, meaning uh, fewer sales, lower revenues. Uh, not every business is in a position to do that. Uh, they can try to pay more. Uh, They can substitute technology, and I think that where they can do that, they will. There was a story about a restaurant in San Francisco that basically had people come to the counter of of an otherwise white tablecloth restaurant and make their orders there and take their place to the table, (laughs) which may not be what we're looking for in that kind of a setting. But it's quite quite an amazing transformation, and it's, uh, as they say in in sponsorship, it's brought to you by the pandemic. (laughs) The, uh, well, you mentioned, uh, touched upon one thing that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, we're clearly seeing this uh, readjustment of the economy, if you will, and sort of a change in the way people see work. And it's my sense, but tell me what uh, you think in our just remaining moments here. I don't think we're going back to uh, the old ways here. Do you? I mean, what? The, give me the big picture going forward. Uh, it's on business leaders and ultimately working with their team members, their employees, their workers to continue to innovate and probably have to innovate at a faster level. And that's consistent with what was in place before the pandemic. And that is, you know, the changes that we're seeing in the world are occurring at a faster rate uh, more than ever before across a breadth of considerations, including climate change and societal change. The composition of the people, for example, who populate an area like the state of Texas, more diversity. And it's also on these enterprises to embrace and enforce diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I think ultimately the balance of power has shifted toward workers. We're seeing increased levels level of worker strikes uh, at a time when we know the administration has prioritized so-called, as Joe Biden likes to say, quote, good paying union jobs. But obviously not every job is going to be a union job. And in fact, most aren't. We see automobile makers moving to non-union states. But I think more broadly, there's going to be a focus on the the quality of life for workers. That includes things like mental health, physical health, and obviously all the things that uh, people go to work for that include uh, compensation. So the onus is on managers and enterprises to try to address these issues uh, and ultimately serve the businesses and the customers they need. And in so doing, they have to elevate 
uh, their workforces. We're talking with Mark Hamrick. He's Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. Mark, you know, earlier in the year, there was a lot of talk, uh, mostly from conservatives, that a lot of people were not taking jobs because they were content to stay home, take government pandemic benefits. But the data now does not seem to support that theory. Why is that? Not at all, Paul. And, you know, I was, uh, as you know, in my work, I'm professionally politically agnostic. It's our work at Bankrate to help people, no matter what their personal beliefs are, to achieve uh, their financial goals. So, you know, when, let's say, a particular argument is being uh, perpetuated or hashed out by those of a particular political stripe, my radar tends to grow sort of rise and then ask, well, why is it coming from that camp? And, and and if it's actually true, why is it not coming from across the spectrum? And this argument about essentially uh, having some resentment or uh, complaint about extended and heightened unemployment benefits was of a essentially Republican or conservative argument and limited to some businesses or trade groups. So, you know, we wanted, we were sort of eager to get to this point past Labor Day to see once the federal pandemic benefits went away. And of course, earlier, some states sought to do away with them on their own, largely on the actions of governors. Um, the, re the reality is in the economic data that there was no sign that uh, more workers were essentially becoming available because of the end of these extended heightened and, and more generous unemployment benefits. And that was seen really going back a number of months, particularly in the so-called high frequency employment data, where you essentially you have the gathering of data that's attached to hours worked and time cards. You know, there's two firms that do work in that space. And they would say time and time again, there is no sign of uh, improvement or more improvement in the uh, states where these unemployment benefits were ended uh, sooner. And so uh, that's just a fact. I think, as I said for many weeks now and, and going back to well before Labor Day, the problem is more complicated than that. Uh, you know, we've had people exit the labor force, including many women. They do tend to be uh, comprising some of these sectors that we talked about before, including uh, leisure and hospitality, retail, uh, as well as healthcare. But of course, we also in our country are unique among major industrialized democracies that we don't have federally mandated family leave. And so if you have to stay at home with a sick family member or a child or someone who can't attend a, a physical school, as was the case at least until this fall, it very often fell upon women. My thanks to Mark Hamrick, Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.
few other items from another crowded week. The sound of aluminum on asphalt, that's the sound of lawmakers kicking the can down the road on the debt ceiling. Both the House and Senate agreeing to lift the ceiling another $480 billion. That avoids what everyone, both Republicans and Democrats, say would be an economic catastrophe. But $480 billion, that's only good enough for maybe six or seven more weeks, which means there will be another debt standoff in December. By the way, one thing you need to know about the debt ceiling, it does not allow for new spending. It only allows the government to pay its existing debts. New spending can only be authorized by Congress, of course. And good news for the nearly 70 million Americans on Social Security. They're getting a cost-of-living raise of nearly 6%. It's effective in January. Why 6%? Because that matches the inflation rate, so say the Social Security folks. The government spends more on Social Security than anything else by far. This year alone, more than $1.1 trillion. hear about another evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Now let's open up the West Wing Report's archives and take a look at what made history this week in the past. Turns out there's a whole bunch of stuff. Construction began on the White House in 1792, largely with slave labor. Took eight years to finish and cost the 2021 equivalent of about $80 million. You might not know, by the way, that back then it was called the Presidential Palace and later the Executive Mansion. It wasn't until this week in 1901 when Theodore Roosevelt changed it to White House. What else happened this week? Two more things involving ex-president Theodore Roosevelt. He became the first president to fly in an airplane. That was in 1910. And in 1912, when running for president again, he was shot in the chest while giving a speech. A thick folded copy of his speech and an eyeglass case slowed the bullet down. He was bleeding, but insisted on finishing the 90-minute address before going to the hospital. Roosevelt said, it takes more than one bullet to kill a bull moose, he bragged. And ever heard of Spiro Agnew? I'll bet you haven't. He was Richard Nixon's vice president, that is, until he resigned in 1973 after getting snared in a tax evasion scandal. Only two VPs have ever resigned. Imagine this, if Agnew had remained vice president, he would have become president when Nixon himself resigned 10 months later. Instead, Nixon had to pick a new VP. Our distinguished guests and our, my fellow Americans, I proudly present to you the man whose name I will submit to the Congress of the United States for confirmation 
as the Vice President of the United States, Congressman Gerald Ford of Michigan. It was Ford, of course, who would go on to succeed Nixon the following year. And one final item, Jimmy Carter won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. Want more history? Check out my books on Amazon. I'll sign them for you, too. Just shoot me an email. I'll give you the address in a minute. I'd like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful. This week, it's from our third president, Thomas Jefferson. He said, quote, I never considered a difference of opinion in politics, in religion, in philosophy as cause for withdrawing from a friend. Think about it. That's all for this week. Here's my email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. That's P-B-R-A-N-D-U-S, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. I try my best to answer all emails. All I ask is that you keep it civil. Please include your full name and town, and thank you. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer, sound engineer, and designer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. I think that was good enough. I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.